This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Something that Rowdy and I have pressed many times throughout these podcasts is the fact that names not only have special meanings in the Hebrew text, they define the function of the characters bearing those names. In other words, the names offer critical context to the overall narrative, and without a clear understanding of the names in the original language, the narrative itself can become blurred. So it's surprising that one of the most important names in the scriptural narrative is extremely elusive to biblical scholars and nobody seems to know exactly what is going on with the language. This name is Abraham, the new God-given name for Abram. In today's episode, Rowdy and I will discuss the various scholarly interpretations into this name, and we will also touch on the impact these different interpretations have on the broader scriptural narrative. But before we dig into that can of worms, Let's listen to the verses of chapter 17 leading up to Abram's name change. So, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Okay, so the first thing we need to mention is the term El Shaddai, which typically gets translated to God Almighty like it does here in the ESV. This is another word that gets tricky to get just right, but there are definitely some clues within and around the Hebrew language, as other Semitic languages often offer up some clues. Uh, This will be a theme of this episode. Uh, Some scholars point it to the Akkadian word Shadu, Uh, which means mountain, which makes sense in the context of the ancient Near East. Uh, In fact, uh, in old Canaanite texts, the god El, who was the father of the gods, was said to dwell on a holy mountain. And we certainly get this same understanding in Ezekiel and the Torah, where God is on Mount Sinai in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and then on Mount Horeb in the book of Deuteronomy. There are also those who point out a connection with Sadeh, which is the plain, as in the the flatland. This could also make sense, 
given Scripture's emphasis on God's relationship with the Midbar. But the term Almighty seems to come from a few sources. In the Septuagint version of Job, there is an instance where Shaddai is translated to Padokrator. My fellow Orthodox Christians will probably instantly recognize this, as it's a common epithet for Christ as he is depicted in icons. It literally means all-powerful. This choice of the Septuagint translators to render Shaddai to Padokrator is likely due to its possible relationship with Shaddad, meaning a strong destroyer. In Arabic, Shadid can also mean strong, so perhaps there's a connection here. It's definitely uncertain, but the translations give us a few clues into its meaning. I mean, I don't think that we need to get too distracted on this name, but it's worth pointing out. And in context with most of its appearances, it seems to usually imply something akin to God Almighty. So I'll tentatively go with that meaning. But there's others. Um, it, you know, it's kind of a substitute, perhaps, of sorts for, uh, for Elohim, which, if you remember from our episodes on the first chapter of Genesis, refers to God in the honorific plural signifying that this God of Scripture is not just a God, but the God, right? Where the ancient world had gods for different attributes, this scriptural deity is a God who does it all. He has no equal. So I would surmise that this is the function of El Shaddai as it appears in Scripture. Yeah, and in addition to your suggestions, there is another that I think is uh, really interesting. The Hebrew word shad is the word for a woman's breast, specifically as a sign of fertility. This is the word used to describe the woman's breasts in the Song of Solomon, or to identify a mother's breasts for nursing. It's a very evocative image, especially for us moderners. There's no question that regardless of your culture, this imagery is extremely raw and, and vulnerable. The word shaddai is the exact same word you would have when you would make the word shad for breast into the first person plural, as in my breast. Now, do I think the text has God declaring that he is God of my breasts? Well, no, I don't think that makes, you know, perfect sense. However, I do think that this, along with the words Blaze discussed, would have immediately resonated with the original hearers of the text given that they are Semites, people who, you know, come from this family of languages. And I think it's worthwhile to discuss these things, because it really gets at the heart of the matter in regard to what the authors are trying to accomplish by the way they use the Hebrew language. One of the most surreal sensory experiences I have ever had, and maybe some of you listeners are familiar with this, uh, it was when I was in the band room of my university playing piano. Uh, now, it wasn't my brilliant playing that was surreal, but rather an acoustic phenomenon. I was playing a swelling chord progression that grew more and more dense as the melody evolved. And as I reached the end of the phrase, I landed on a really powerful yet colorfully nuanced chord. I let it ring and fade naturally. And as I relieved the sustain pedal, ceasing the vibration of the piano strings, I noticed that several of the instruments in the band room were resonating the same frequencies as the chord I just played the cellos and the basses resting in the corner of the room to the bells and the timpani nearer to me. 
I experimented with this. I realized that if I strummed a chord on my guitar while leaving the sustain pedal down on the piano, that the resonant frequencies from my guitar chord would activate the corresponding strings in the piano. And they gave off this brilliant, unencumbered hum. It's like they were humming by their own accord, not because of my influence from pressing the keys of the piano. I don't know what it was about it, but it was something about the cooperation of these instruments across a medium such as sonic vibrations that really amazed me. And that's precisely how Hebrew works. These interesting, sometimes complicated or colorfully nuanced words strike resonant frequencies with the other words in the language, if one knows those other words. But back to my original point, a term like El Shaddai should cause the reader to conjure up immediate mental and or emotional connections to various other Semitic terms like breast, mountain, destroyer, and wilderness. Again, that is, if you know those words. Remember, the authors are trying to communicate who this God of Scripture is. He is a king. But they can't just call him a king, or else I will think that this God is whatever I think a king is. Likewise, he is a shepherd. A Mesopotamian shepherd is vastly different in nature to any kind of king. So as the hearer, I start to form new mental images of who exactly this God is. Now, with another title for this God, El Shaddai, that image is becoming even clearer. Next is Abram's age, which is very important. Uh, He's one year shy of 100, which would signify that despite being old, he hasn't reached his full purpose as a character yet. St. Paul remarks in his letters to the Romans and to the Hebrews that Abraham was as good as dead at this point. This is an important observation because it was only when Abram was already powerless as an old man that God finally gives him the promise of progeny. This decrepit state of Abram is perhaps a parallel to the dry bones passage in Ezekiel, and it also calls to mind the healing of the similarly dry and decrepit paralytic who Jesus heals in St. John's Gospel. Again, we have to pay attention to how God is emasculating the characters, who we would expect to be heroes of the story, and I choose that word emasculate on purpose because of what this coming covenant will entail for all males in Abraham's household. This, of course, is referring to the act of circumcision. But next we have God teasing this covenant as one which will require Abram's full obedience. He says to walk before his face, that is, as an obedient sheep, and to be tamim, which is translated as blameless, but it literally has the connotation of being complete or perfect. This completeness will be obediently following the call. That's what it means to be obedient. And this, of course, is the the Bar Yahweh in the Midbar. Next, we hear that God will make a covenant with Abram, but this word make in the original is actually Natan, which more literally means to give as a gift. This is where the name Nathan comes from, and thus by extension the name Jonathan means Yahweh has given. So yet again, this covenant is ratifying an inheritance from God to Abram and Abram's descendants. And it is through this covenant that God will truly make his descendants great in number. In the original, this uses the word Rabbah, which is the same word that gets translated to multiply in the famous be fruitful and multiply passages throughout the early parts of Genesis. But how God chooses to enact this covenant is surprising, but we'll get into that 
next episode. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So really quickly, before we get into the renaming of Abraham, I want to briefly touch on this concept of possession once again, since we just heard about it. There are several words that we've looked at so far. Uh, in Genesis 3, we heard about Cana and how this functionally interacts with the character of Cain. Uh, this word has the connotation of acquiring something or gaining something. It essentially has the connotation of ownership. The next word we've looked at is Yarash, and this one has absolutely nothing to do with owning or possessing anything, despite how it's often translated. And it has everything to do with an inheritance. That's what it means. Literally, if you look in the Hebrew, that's what that word means. The third one, though, appears in this text when God promises that he will give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. And that word is achuza. This word means to hold or to handle, and as the land is concerned, uh, contextually it has to do with occupation, right? It's a military type word. Uh, God is promising to Abraham that due to God's free gift, his descendants will have an everlasting occupation in the land of Canaan. Once again, this gets misinterpreted. Cana, Yorash, and Achuzah all have different meanings, so it's obviously a mistake to translate all three of them as if they're synonymous. They aren't, and, and I've just demonstrated that. But modern translations have the tendency to ignore this, again, unfortunately, largely due to political reasons. And, you know, that's extremely unfortunate. But this is a classic human behavior scheme. You know, as Scripture tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, I'd like to compound that even more. I agree with you, Blaze, that English translations often do a poor job because of political motivations, but I think to a degree we just don't have these concepts in English. Our language itself is built out of cultures of empire, and English rarely provides the tools to communicate nuances regarding ownership. You know, if I own something, I own it. That's it. I possess it. I own it. I have it. It's mine. The individualistic nature of our language is inescapable. We quite literally don't have the words for it. Even if someone has given us a gift, we never say, this was gifted to me, without first saying, this is mine. In Hebrew, there's no concept of possession like there is in English. In Hebrew, when you want to refer to someone's belongings, you would say, the things that are to him. As in, he left his hometown and took with him his wife and his sons and his sheep and all that was to him. Of course, it sounds silly in English, but that's the idea. However, there are verbs in Hebrew that do denote a type of possession. And notice my emphasis on the word type, because these words don't mean a possession explicitly, because a verb is an action. So these words denote a circumstance or a reality. 
Blaze, you already mentioned these, but I'm going to repeat the words you mentioned so that it really sticks with the hearers of the text. I'm also going to mention another one that I think should be included, despite it being slightly different from the others, so I'm going to give four words in total. In order of appearance in Genesis, there is kana, to acquire in the sense of taking hold of. Remember the connection to the kain, the spear, as well as the connection to the homophonic kana, which has an aleph at the end instead of a he, which means to be jealous. So this is the acquiring of spoils, of self-reward. That's the connotation. Next is lekach, which is to take. This one isn't necessarily tied to possession, but when you look at its development in uh, usage through the opening narrative of Genesis, you see how powerfully it illustrates the biblical message of anti-human possession. At first, it's only God who lekach. He takes the man and puts him in the garden. He takes the rib of man and builds the woman. But the first time the human lakach is when the woman takes from the fruit of the tree, causing the curse. God closes off the garden from man so that the man does not take also from the tree of life. Notice, we always say that Eve ate the fruit from the tree, but the Hebrew actually says she took from the fruit of the tree. When Cain killed Abel, the ground opens its mouth to take the blood of Abel. And Lamech, the descendant of Cain, takes two wives for himself. So when humans take, it's not good news, as it normally means the demise of someone else. The third word is yarash, which is to inherit, as Blaze said. It can be to inherit or disinherit, but whatever the situation or the context, someone is inheriting because God is allowing them to do so. He is the one allowing the inheritance or the disinheritance anytime that verb is applied to a person or a character in Scripture. The text has done everything it can to make us understand that humans can't possess or control anything, and when this word in particular gets translated as possess, it's the worst calamity. Blaze, you've said it before in a previous episode, but just imagine hearing your Christian brother or sister proclaim that they confessed their sins, and now that they've been baptized, they possess salvation, and they possess eternal life. It sounds ridiculous. And the fourth word is achuza, which, like you said, Blaze, has more to do with a local occupation in the sense of occupying a land. Again, not owning it in the sense of a possession. It's silly to say that you own the dirt beneath you. But having grasp of it, like the root achaz would suggest. It's the same idea as the way you physically have a grasp on the ground that is physically under your feet. The word achuza almost always can be translated as property versus possession because that's the context. You buy a piece of land from a king, it is your achuzah, your property. Remember, scripturally speaking, nobody owns anything. But our modern capitalistic minds can't think outside the parameters of possession, and that bleeds into our Bible translations. And I know it would be nice if we didn't have to spend so much time hashing this stuff out, but this specific error in understanding has inspired countless conflicts up until this very day, such as the political conflicts in the Middle East. The Bible is critiquing this very mindset of possession and subjugating all who hear the text to be under the same scrutiny. When the text is manipulated to suit the agenda of the possessor, I can't help but think that God sits upon his throne laughing at the one who possesses whilst hearing the cries of their victim. And now for Abraham's name, right? The main event of this episode. Now, again, this is surprisingly complicated to figure out because the Hebrew alone isn't super obvious. 
we would expect the name to in, in some way mean a father of a multitude of nations or something to that effect. But in Hebrew, we get that God will change his name to Abraham because he will be an Ab or father of Hamon Goim, many nations. There has been speculation that somehow perhaps there's a play on words with Hamon and Abraham. But the problem is that Abraham is clearly a combination of the word Ab and some sort of RHM root. It seems weird that if Hamon was supposed to be the, the point, one would think that Abram's name would thus be Ab Hamon. This would make more sense if that's what the text was actually trying to say. And while I'm not denying the play on words, as that seems obvious from the context, there's simply no way Raham is related to Hamon in any linguistic sense. I think there actually may be a model in scripture similar to this instance with the Tower of Babel. If you recall that story, Babel was called by that name because God confused or Balal the languages there. So the oral connection between Balal and Babal are presented here, even though these are two clearly different words. And Babel does not mean confuse, literally. I mean, it's, it appears that way in the text, but literally it doesn't mean confuse. It's, it's not even a Hebrew word. It's, it's an Akkadian word, meaning the gate of God. So therefore, it's reasonable to assume that Raham does not mean a multitude, but is certainly interacting with the word Hamon. Yeah, I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with Father Paul Tarazi, but if not, just know that he is a biblical scholar who has directly taught scripture to most, if not all of those who produce podcasts and publications through the Ephesus School Network. I like the way he explains this phenomenon. He he calls it the scriptural definition of a word, or at least something along those lines. That's what I'm going to call it, at least. The basic idea is that even though Babel doesn't mean confuse, we have to remember that it does, because the text tells us that it is called that due to the city being Balal. Likewise, in the story of Noah, his name is Nuach, which means rest. But it is said that he is called Nuach because he will bring Nacham. Those words don't mean the same thing, but they are connected according to the scriptural text. Therefore, it is the scriptural definition. The same can be said about our earlier example of possession. Eve named her son Cain, Spear, because she had Cana, or gotten him. The words maintain their own meaning, but when we hear them, like with Noah or Babel, we have to remember how the text defined them in their original scriptural appearance. So that brings us to our next point. What does Raham mean? Well, like Babel, which has an Akkadian origin, we might have to look outside the Hebrew language for clues. One place that scholars have looked is Arabic, which is actually quite common because those two languages, while being different, have considerable overlap. Even if you just do a basic Google search into the etymology of Abraham, the first thing that pops up is speculation that somehow the word that we see in Hebrew is related to the Arabic word ruham, meaning multitude. Well, I'm not well versed enough in Arabic to be sure of this, but I actually think this is somewhat incorrect, and the word they are actually referring to is arham from the same root, 
But I'll touch on that later, though. But this brings me to the main point of this whole thing. And before I get precisely to it, I just want to warn you that this will entail several asides, but it's necessary to give you the full picture of what's going on. One scholar who has looked at this in an incredibly intriguing way is a Lebanese Orthodox scholar, Iskander Abuchar, in his book Rereading Isaiah 40-55 to as the project launcher for the books of the Law and the Prophets. Uh, in it, he writes about the function of Abraham and Sarah, not from the vantage point of Genesis, but from their mention in Isaiah 51, verse 2, which he argues in his thesis was the basis for the patriarchal narratives in Genesis. Well, we don't need to get into that right now. The main point is that Abraham is functionally the father of the suffering servant, who is an unnamed character featured in four different poems in the second section of Isaiah. The main emphasis is on the fourth servant poem, which follows the mention of Abraham and Sarah in chapter 51. This servant song extends through chapters 52 and 53 and features the famous, he was pierced for our transgressions and through his stripes we are healed and all of those common messianic prophecies which are obviously picked up by the New Testament and applied to Christ. It's clear from the context that this suffering servant is to become a sin offering for Israel, mimicking the function of both goats for the Day of Atonement, the one that is a sin offering, which is slaughtered with the blood being sprinkled onto the congregation, and the scapegoat, who is to bear all the sins of the people and sent out of the camp, to literally take away the sins of Israel. This is the character that the author of this second part of Isaiah is concocting. He's introduced as one who, from the womb, is called by God for this purpose, but has no voice of his own. Everything he does is according to God's will. And this defining feature is that he will establish God's divine mishpat, his justice, not only to the house of Israel, but to all the nations. In fact, this servant is to be a light to the nations. But he will not achieve this end by loudly proclaiming it or taking up arms against anyone, but will simply achieve this by doing nothing at all, except to simply be obedient to the God of Scripture, even into his humiliating treatment and death as that very sin offering. I mean, it's absolutely astounding, and it's essentially the source text for the characterization of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This is the very same Christ who Paul identifies as Abraham's singular offspring in Galatians chapter 3. So Paul, too, had this understanding that Abraham is not immediately the father of a multitude per se, but the father of the suffering servant, Allah, Isaiah, who, through that servant being a light to the nations, will result in the bosom or household of Abraham to be filled with recently grafted in Gentiles from many nations to the ends of the earth. That's very impressive. So how does Raham and Abu Char fit into this? Well, what Abu Char did is demonstrate that the Arabic root RHM 
features a tremendous set of clues. Using Edward William Lane's famous Arabic-English lexicon, he notes that Raham, and sometimes Roham in Arabic, refers to a lean or emaciated lamb or goat. In other words, a weak lamb, or a weakling lamb, as Father Paul Tarazi renders it in his book, The Rise of Scripture. Again, this very clearly parallels the function of the suffering servant in Isaiah, but more than that, it functions in Abraham's own narrative in Genesis as the father who will have to sacrifice his own Raham in the person of Isaac. Digging deeper into this root, we find out that the vocalization Arham means more fruitful or plentiful, which certainly ties into Abraham's eventual fatherhood of the Gentiles, but of course, it's only part of this whole thing. Abu Char also notes Rima, which means a light drizzle, and Marham, which refers to a dressing to heal wounds. So as he says in his book, all of these words from this Arabic root can easily be applied in the function of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, right? Because the Raham is the suffering servant. The light drizzle is the sprinkling of blood, and he heals us by his marham, his healing of our, of our wounds, by his wounds, by his stripes, as Isaiah puts it. And it is through this that there is an arrival of plenty and abundance in the land that was previously barren, not just in the sense of vegetation and food, but of Abraham's household. This is what is precisely meant by saying that Abraham is a father of a multitude, an arham of nations. He bears the suffering servant, the raham, whose suffering is the very instrument for the Gentile reception into Abraham's bosom. So I know that's a lot of information. <laughs> so uh, for risk of, of overbearing the listeners, I want to scale it back a little bit and, and ask the question, can... And should we use the Arabic in this way? Because obviously Arabic is the base we are relying on for this reading. And well, again, we have to remember that Arabic and Hebrew are much closer in relation than we might think. And they share obvious overlap, even though obviously they are, at the end of the day, different languages. But more so than that, this vocabulary of the Raham, meaning an emaciated lamb, is likely derived from shepherd lingo. It's Bedouin vocabulary. Thus, it's reasonable to assume that the scriptural authors were aware of this word, or a word like it, uh, in use among the Bedouins of their time, since the scriptural authors illustrate this Bedouin lifestyle so often in their writing. And again, a similar thing has occurred in the Hebrew Bible already. Remember again that Babel and Balal are different words, yet they are connected within the narrative. And Babel has its origin in Akkadian, not Hebrew. Therefore, it's not far-fetched that the scriptural authors incorporated the language of the Arab Bedouins into their concocted literary language of scriptural Hebrew. Now, this next part is definitely speculation and should be taken as such, but I can't help but hear a possible connection, too, with the Arabic Raham and the Hebrew word for shepherd, which is Roeh. There is also the opposite of Raham in Hebrew, which is Rachel, right? This is the word that is the basis for the name Rachel. 
It refers to a healthy ewe lamb as opposed to an emaciated male as Raham does. These similarities give me the suspicion that all these words are related and overlap across linguistic lines and were all used by Arabs and other shepherds of the region. So that's the basic idea of Abuchar's work into this name, and I think it's important to share, not to convince anyone that this is something he unlocked, but to invite people to dig deeper into these names and to consider looking around the Semitic world in and around the biblical Hebrew itself. Yeah, it's really brilliant. Uh, the Arabic RHM root that you mentioned does actually have concrete overlap in Hebrew, opposed to you know pure speculation. There is uh, an RHM root word in Hebrew that is spelled with the harsh H, chet, instead of the soft H, hey. In the name Abraham, it's with the soft H, but the root word that I'm about to talk about, like I said, has the harsh H. But it is heavily related to the, to, to the Arabic root that we've been talking about. The word in Hebrew is racham, which is compassion or mercy often specifically referring to God's mercy. In some contexts, it can mean a womb, as Semites seem to strongly parallel these concepts of mercy and the safety and merciful confinement of a mother's womb. In fact, in Arabic, once again, the RHM root that Blaise mentioned also means mercy and compassion, and is a foundational aspect of two of Allah's divine names in Islam, those being Al-Rahman, and al-Rahmin, which means the compassionate and the merciful, respectively. And similar to Hebrew, the Arabic word rahm, from the same R-H-M root, also means womb. In fact, in the Hadith Qudsi, a revered collection of sayings written down by Muhammad, given to him by God, it says, I am God, Allah, and I am the merciful. I created the womb, and I have given it a name derived from my own name. So if we hear the raham, as it is pronounced in Arabic, in relation to the exact same word in Hebrew, raham, and then plug the Arabic pronunciation into Abraham's name, you get ab-raham, the father of mercy, which plays beautifully into the explanation Blaze just offered as well. If the suffering servant is the embodiment of the teaching, then he is God's mercy, and the father of mercy is ab-raham. Another way to interpret this, of course, would be that Abraham means father of the womb. Now, this one is a bit odd, but stick with me. Remember earlier how I explained that we hear for the first time that title of God, El Shaddai, and how that could be interpreted as God of my breasts, as in the nursing breasts of a mother. If we couple this interpretation with the interpretation of Abraham, meaning father of the womb, then you immediately see this extremely cohesive maternal imagery. Abram has his name changed to father of the womb to signify that it is through him that the multitude of nations come. God says Abram will be called Abraham, and that Abraham will be exceedingly fruitful, being made into a multitude of nations. These nations will receive the covenant of mercy, originally given to Abraham by God, in this pericope. Then it is the Shadim, the breast of God, that will nurture these nations who are under the covenant. Abraham is the father of the womb. God is the nurturing breast. 
I don't think the imagery could be any clearer. And I think if nothing else, I personally just hope that through researching and studying these etymologies, we can show our hearers how these Semitic languages work to communicate something much more beautiful and terrifying than anything you will ever hear in a Sunday sermon. We are not championing one perspective and condemning the others, no. Remember, the original hearers would have had these connections resonate within them naturally and would have understood the text to be saying something far more profound, far more impressive than some reductionist theological statement. This is what it means to hear the text. The same way that you hear the resonances in a concert hall at the end of a magnificent orchestral performance. The orchestra strikes the final chord, all the musicians are perfectly in tune, the conductor's hands are raised triumphantly in the air before he relaxes his arms to signify the end of the piece, and in that moment of suspense you hear something more delicate, more nuanced, and far more profound than the notes that were written on the page. That is what we should hear when we hear Hebrew, when we hear these functional names, El Shaddai, Avraham, Yehoshua, El Elyon, Al-Rahman, Moshe, Yahweh Elohim, and on and on and on. This is what it means to hear the text, dear siblings. Not to be creative and bend the rules in order to say whatever we want, but to bend ourselves over backwards so that we hear the text. I hope you join us again next week so that we can continue doing just that. Until then, Shalom Aleichem.